0: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. This episode is sponsored by training webinars at the Center for Digital Archaeology. Check out digitaltraining.site for the class schedule and to register for an upcoming webinar. That's digitaltraining.site. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 102 for January 18th, 2017. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, Bill White and I talk about our experiences at the 50th Annual Society for Historical and Underwater Archaeology Conference in Fort Worth, Texas at the beginning of January. So go register for the next conference coming up, which could be California or Vancouver or wherever you're at, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. (music) Hey, so as I said in the intro, um, we're this this edition of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. We were hoping to record at the venue at uh Fort Worth, Texas, um, at the Omni Hotel where the 50th Annual Society for Historical and Underwater Archaeology Conference took place. However, Bill White, who's with me today, uh, we we couldn't get we couldn't even see each other more than like twice the whole time because we were so busy. So, how's it going, Bill? (laughs) Pretty good. Yeah, I'm back to uh, Tucson now, where it's not snowing. Yeah, and I'm in Reno, where it's snowpocalypse. Actually, the flakes are actually getting bigger and more dense as I'm speaking. So um, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually quite horrible. I took my wife to work this morning, where on a sunny day, uh, in traffic, it takes 20 minutes for her to get to work, and it took almost an hour today um, just to get there, wow. and, and it's terrible. Yeah. So, uh, So anyway, and on top of that, it snowed in Dallas on, what was that, Saturday or or, uh, Friday or something? I couldn't believe it. Yeah, but
1: I mean, we need to really uh, be more uh, descriptive when we mean snow. (laughs) Right. So Dallas, like, first of all, I was thinking, you know, well, it's similar latitude as uh, Tucson. Mm -hmm. How how it says it's part of the West. How different could it really be? It was freezing (laughs) there. It was yeah. freezing. And, like, the last time I was that cold at the SHA in January was in Quebec City, and mm-hmm. there was, like, ice, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's normal for Canada, but we all look at it like it's strange, like, you know, going to a <laughs> hotel where you can get, uh, you know, your drink in an actual cup made out of ice. Right. Um, Yeah, so that's the kind of stuff you can do in Quebec City. And this year they might have been able to pull it off in uh, Fort Worth because it was that cold. Mm-hmm. But uh, the snow we're talking about was, like, I don't even know if it's technically snow. It was that little (laughs) stuff that looks like it's the foam balls, the tiny balls, and then they just kind of build up. It's just like, you know, the air just willing itself to snow. It wasn't actual flakes (laughs) or whatever. So that actually caused a snow apocalypse. One of my good friends who lives in Fort Worth, he let his the people in his office go home at three thirty. They normally get off at five on the Mm -hmm. Friday because it took him two hours to get home oh my God. just because there was like the specter of snow in Dallas. Right. So, uh, you know, I, it was snow apocalypse for Dallas, but I think the majority of the country would just laugh like, <laughs> wow, you know, that's not, I mean, it was the kind of snow that you could just drive fast and it gets off your car.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, the only thing that I was really surprised by, I mean, aside from the, the maybe snow was the cold. It was, um, but that's a factor of the SHAs. I mean, they're always in the first week of January. I think maybe they thought they'd escape that a little bit by having it in Texas this year. But I mean, it was like 13 or 14 degrees Friday morning when we were leaving our Airbnb to head to the hotel. I mean, it was it was frigid. Plus the wind chill because it was windy the whole time we were there. I think. Yeah. So yeah, it was pretty crazy. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's normal for Fort Worth. No. But aside from that, I feel like um, now, Bill, you've been to a lot of SHAs. I don't think you've missed one in a long time, and. Uh, I mean, what what was your sense of attendance this year for that conference? Because it seemed to I was in the tech room, which was actually really just the exhibit hall. Um, there wasn't even anything saying it was the tech room. We were just like the first tables you saw as you came into the exhibit hall. And um, I feel like we had pretty consistent traffic for the Thursday and Friday that we were in there. A lot of people coming through. Um, but I didn't see... Because I was so busy with that, I didn't see any papers uh, go to any presentations or do anything like that. So what was your... Um, What was your sense of attendance this year do you think I've heard people say that it was it was down that attendance was down
1: yeah I I'm actually in the process of writing a blog post uh, Mm -hmm. before this about my experience at the SHA and I've been to all of them since uh, like 2002 except for a couple of them Mm -hmm. and this one was one of the smaller ones there was fewer people
0: yeah I know one thing I noticed just being in the exhibit hall that there seemed to be um, maybe I was just aware of it more but there seemed to be a higher presence for the under, presence for the underwater archaeology folks. There was some underwater ROVs and a, a bunch of things. I think, in fact, we may have been one of the only ones in the tech room besides Dina and Tidar that weren't um, underwater focused. Uh, did, did you notice that at all?
1: No, I, I didn't notice that, but um, uh, I did notice that it seemed like there was more underwater symposia, but actually, I think it was just that there was fewer terrestrial. Right. So uh, they were closer uh, to even. Usually there's way more terrestrial talks than um, underwater ones. So I don't even know what's going on, too, because, you know, it's 2016 was a relatively good year for CRM. A lot, most of the mm-hmm. people I know had a job. So I, and I also know a lot of rad projects went down this last year. But for whatever reason, folks just didn't go to the SHA.
0: Right. Well, I don't know. Um, we we definitely had a good uh, we had Codify in the APN at the tech room booth and uh we had we had a lot of people coming by and i recorded a bunch of interviews just standing up i had my boom set up and my mic right on the edge of the table and i do i recorded a bunch of interviews just standing up right there and uh we actually talked to a lot of people about codify caption and what we're doing for crm um coming up here in the next few months and people are pretty excited about that And just to kind of get some of my stuff out of the way, because I think most of what we're going to talk about are the things that you did at SHA, Bill. Because, like I said, I spent most of the time in the tech room. Um, We gave you, because you won at uh, the Great Basin Anthropological Conference, you won one of our photo boards, which we hadn't even developed yet, but we knew we were going to. (laughs) And so we finally delivered it to you um, at the conference. Have you even had a chance to pull that thing out and take a look at it and really, really check it out yet?
1: Uh, I looked up what you said about the the targets for 3d imaging on the internet yeah no but i mean it's it comes perfectly because i need to do artifact pictures for my dissertation right now anyway so nice yeah it's perfect timing to get that i already had the um like the foam board uh light stand and i have some lights and stuff so Mm -hmm. i already had a lot of the photo stuff but just having this uh option to do 3d photos that you know hopefully it's a game changer
0: Mm mm-hmm yeah, and if your artifacts fit on the board because we gave you the ten by twelve, if they fit, I mean you can take all your um, all your artifact photography on that board and crop out the scales if you want, and just have that background. And then um, you know the eighteen percent gray background allows you to uh, use an eyedropper tool with white white balance in any software that has that capability, and then color balance your photo. So um, works out works out pretty well. That's why it is gray. So it works that way. Um, That's pretty cool. I didn't yeah. know that yeah um, so yeah we'll have some some tutorials and things like that coming out regarding the photo boards here in a few weeks probably um, show people how best to use it but so anyway um, what was uh, let's just go let's just go day by day. What was your uh, what was your Thursday like? What would you do on Thursday? Well Thursday
1: is pretty interesting uh, because of snowpocalypse apocalypse elsewhere in the country. <laughs> My flight was late on wednesday night so i didn't even get to my room till a little bit after one hmm. so and then i also had to do a I i had to finish my online class that i taught this winter mm-hmm. so i missed the morning on thursday but i mm-hmm. checked in at noon just in time for my former advisor to buy me lunch well that was you know perfect <laughs> like serendipity you know hey how's it going i'm hungry and then just look at him like oh i'm also <laughs> hungry too you know yeah let's go get something to eat yeah i got yeah. to go see my old uh master's advisor it was great the guy's a cool guy. and um, Nice. I, I actually ended up hanging out with him and the uh, current SHA president, and we talked about uh, doing webinars um, along the lines of the SAA. I've actually kind of been tasked with doing that for one of the uh, committees there at the SHA, the uh, Academic and Professional Training Committee. Mm-hmm. And it's taken a while to work things out. I know you and I just grab our microphones and just start to talk, right? And then we just put it right. on the internet. But there's more to it with an organization like the SHA and I've also, it, it's cool that we didn't start a couple years ago when the conversation first came up because I've had enough time to take some of the um, SAA ones, the at least the free ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get to see like what they're doing and I, I really don't know, cause I'm not an SAA member, so I don't have access to like their back end or whatever, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem to me like they're recording them so that you can re-watch them. So the goal with the SHA's version there would be some along the lines of uh, professional training that you're already doing that would have to do with uh, the um, SHA Mm -hmm. that would be free and they'd be hosted on the website for the SHA. At least this is the plan. This is the plan right now. I don't know how far this will actually end up going. Mm -hmm. But then also in order to support the whole thing, there will be a few paid ones each year. So if you're an SHA member, and also the other thing about the SHA Compared to the uh, American Archaeology Society, it's a way smaller group, so right. there's a lot more flexibility uh, as far as you know. If you have a great idea and you know the right people and you run it past them, mm-hmm. then it's not a big deal to get things done, right? So with the SAA, I I, I feel that there might be a little bit more uh, work to do. Nevertheless, that we're still in the you know planning stages. It kind of got halted because the website for the SHA got. Redesigned, so there was kind of a question of, well, if we record it, where's it even going to live? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, the next uh, question that we have to talk about is how is the money going to be, you know, received by the organization and what's going to happen with that? Right. So it, it's moving along, but for the first time, I actually got to talk to, you know, people at the top, and they they sounded interesting, so are interested, so um, that's going to move on. Well, that's good.
0: Uh, Real quick, let me me comment on that real fast, because I I was at the SHA in uh, Seattle, was that two years ago? Um, And we had a conversation in the tech room uh, at the end there, it might have been the tech committee meeting or something like that. Um, But we talked about doing webinars and podcasts, and I don't know if that's when it first came up or not, but... You know, I was all about. Uh, I, I had just started the Archaeology Podcast Network. You know, I've been doing this podcast for, um, I think, two years at that point because we're at four years now. But I had just started the Archaeology Podcast Network, so we were actually looking for new shows and things to add. And I mentioned having, you know, we could have an SHA show or a or a historical archaeology show sponsored by the SHA or something like that. And we had some good um, some good back and forth for a few months, and then it just absolutely completely died, and I hadn't I haven't heard anything about it um, since. So. The way I feel about organizations like the SHA and SH, SAA and even like ACRA, AAA, things like that, doing their own podcasts or webinars is that, well, first off, like you guys are finding out, you know, you have all these problems that you're trying to work through to make this happen, like you're finding out you're not really set up for that, right? These, these organizations are not really designed for that. They're designed for um, you know, putting on these conferences and having resources for their members and ethical principles to follow and things like that. So why not take podcasts and webinars and give them to organizations that are set up to do that and, and, you, and, the, and the organization can sponsor it and even and even have the material housed on their website if they so choose so their members can find it but know that it's sponsored by that organization. The content is driven by the organization and it's sponsored by the organization but all the technical aspects of housing the material, recording the material, editing the material, doing all those things is actually given to an organization that can do that like the Archaeology Podcast Network. And and in the future, because I don't think we're actually ready for this now, but we will be soon, um, PCS could do all the webinar video stuff. We're actually we're actually going to be getting some space here in Reno where we can film indoors green screen style and have some really good... Um, we could really be able to, to step up our video production. And the same with Archaeology Podcast Network. We'll be able to broadcast in that space as well with some new video podcasts we'll be doing. So... Um, I, it sounds like I'm tooting my own horn because I I head the Archaeology Podcast Network and I'm a founder of PCS. But there's nothing else set up to do that for archaeology right now. So I, I while I while I applaud the organizations for trying to do something like this. I hope it doesn't get lost in them trying to figure it out and they maybe at least seek as an option, you know, outside help. Even if it's not APN or PCS, as long as it's somebody that is set up to do this professionally and can do it I don't know what are your thoughts on that being involved in this now no man I I totally hear you uh I and I like I said it's like I'm like the guy
1: that's moonlighting away from the blogging and stuff with the SHA (laughs) right so right uh I didn't sit around and wait for someone to write a book on you know uh how to build a career or you know write a resume or whatever I just ended up doing it right and it wasn't that my company that I was working for at the time thought it was a good idea or the university. I mean, yeah, at Arizona, I, I'm pretty sure it's not like a lot of people really uh, are impressed by the fact that I made some ebooks, right? Or that I, I blog. I mean, they think it's interesting, but that's probably as far as it goes. Now, mm-hmm. I, like I said, I don't know everybody at Arizona. And actually, I'm like meeting more and more grad students today, which shows you the deep, deep cavern that I actually am in most of the time. I don't even know like what day it is. So I don't know what the faculty or my co-students think. However, uh, I just didn't wait. And so the same thing with the webinars and uh, you know doing the, the podcast, I'm already mm-hmm. doing that. So that's the reason why they ended up talking to me about it, right? And mm-hmm. so to get it going, I have been part of this discussion of establishing the webinars and they want to do it. Um, so yeah, I mean, partnering with, uh, the podcast network or, uh, PCS, that's definitely in the future, uh, a potential, however, I mean, we're, I, I didn't, I don't want the conversation to stop, uh, and it's right. taken like multiple years. So we got to figure something out. Um, I think that, uh, many who have taken the SAA ones, they've gotten a lot of value out of them, but they're doing their whole own thing. Right. And, and their thing is very similar to like what the advisory council does with their uh, section 106 classes where you sign up, you take a class, it's a webinar, you sit there and you consume the material. And maybe there might be some time for you to type in some questions at the end that, you know, somebody will get to talk to talk about, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but you're just basically buying uh, a movie or something that you watch to get some information and you take notes as you wish. Right. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I don't know if you pay for that, if you get a chance to watch it again or, if it's uh, elsewhere because i've only been part of the free ones and no one ever gave me a screencast of the free ones right so i don't i don't actually know about what happens with the paid ones this is only stuff that i've heard about the paid ones uh, but i don't think that there's they're trying to like build a channel uh, like a youtube paid channel or a subscription service to watch these again and again i think that it's a matter of you know having the the specialists who are really skilled and and experts in their field give mm-hmm. the talks and then if it's super popular then maybe they do it again or maybe if they get a certain number of questions along a line of you know inquiry that they can spin off another show they do that uh like i said i don't know about that however i do know that there's some people from the saa that are on their board and and you know high up uh, administrators that actually attend the sha so you know maybe some of the ideas will will Mixed together. I know mm-hmm. that the uh, SHA took over the bottle identification website that was started. Oh man, I can't think of the guy's name who started it. He's a. I know cool who you're guy. talking about. Yeah. His name is Bill. Uh, I can't think of his name right now. Mm-hmm. I'm totally blanking. But, yeah, that SHA BLM website, that thing is awesome. Yeah. So that thing was already created by someone else, Bill Lockhart. That's his name. That's right. Uh, and anyway, the SHA, they're not afraid of collaborating and working with other groups. So Bill Lockhart is doing this stuff with the BLM, and then now it has the SHA name on it, and you can access it through the SHA website. So I, I don't see how you know, they'd have a problem if something like this started on PCS or started on uh, the podcast network, and then they just – Uh, added it to their brand
0: right well uh, we're going to go to break here in a couple seconds but uh, i will just say um a lot of this it really is crossing with and first off even if everybody does their own thing the worst case scenario i see from that is we just have more resources available to everybody right so it's kind of a good problem to have (laughs) so if they never partnered with pcs or the apn and we did the same thing and they did the same thing that's just more likely that when somebody types in "I want to know about historic bottles" on the internet, that they're actually going to find a high-quality resource. So that that I see is the the worst-case scenario here is there's there's a lot of stuff out there for people. That being said, um, you know we we are doing just looking at PCS's videos right now under historic artifacts. We have introduction to bottles, introduction to tin cans, introduction to insulators um, as some of our initial offerings here. But our style is completely different than what SHA is talking about doing with webinars, right? Um, these are longer format things. Uh, they'll cover probably more topics or at least a single topic more in depth. But that's also what we're doing over at CODA, the Center for Digital Archaeology, with their Digital site website. Um, I'm teaching some webinars. They're two-hour webinars. They're $75 for a seat, but it's high-quality information. It's open to everybody. There's no membership required. And we are getting into... Um, some more non-digital archeological topics as well coming up this year in 2017, like one that I'm planning on historic artifacts, prehistoric artifacts, kind of an overview kind of thing and stuff that people can just show up and, and take these courses uh, anytime they want. Um, and we are recording them and we're deciding right now what we're going to do with those recordings. You know, what do you get if you actually sat through the webinar versus what do you get if you just watch the thing, you know, online? Um, because there has to be something more for the people who pay the seventy-five dollars to sit there and watch it, versus someone who just downloads it and watches it, you know, whenever. So we're trying to figure that out. But anyway, we'll continue this discussion in uh, thirty to forty-five seconds, and we on the other side of the break. <laughs> digitaltraining.site, we believe that spending money on learning is great if it helps you solve a problem. If you're a cultural resource management professional, you want to make your workflow faster and more efficient to beat your competitors. If you're a student or young professional, you'll want to learn marketable skills to get that job. If you're a faculty, you want to stay up to date with teaching topics, but you feel overwhelmed by all the technologies and tools out there. Digitaltraining.site is for you. You'll get relevant topics by top-level instructors and downloadable materials at an affordable cost. And if you're an enrolled student. Apply for a scholarship and attend for free. Start learning now at digitaltraining.site. All right, we're back. And I think before we, uh, we rat hold on um, webinars and uh, podcasts for 10 minutes, <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> you, were, you were about to say some of the stuff I think you saw Thursday afternoon and we were going to comment on that.
1: Yeah, actually, you know what? I can't even really remember what I saw on Thursday afternoon. <laughs> it was I mean, over a week me... ago. It's gone now. <laughs> <laughs> uh oh yeah, um, the ethics bowl so uh that's one thing that i I hope that there's people out there that uh are interested in the ethics bowl. The way that it's been set up, it's been university sponsoring teams of uh students, they could be undergrads or graduates, so first of all, do you guys even know? Do you know what Ethics
0: Bowl is? You know, I do, but I've never gone. I've never seen it. So give it a description for our audience. So it's pretty
1: much like uh, a long protracted form of Jeopardy where there's no right or wrong answer. And they pull questions. um, uh, People submit questions and the judges pull the question out and then they give it to the teams. And they have to like deliberate together and decide what would be the most ethical course of conduct. And I don't remember what the question was, mm-hmm. but uh, for the second year in a row, the University of Idaho won. Um, however, this year there was like almost no teams. Mm. So, so they're thinking about expanding it to be just anyone. Uh, you can put together a team of your company or you can put together a mixed team or it can be like whatever, you know, just kind of like a three on three basketball tournament of uh, archaeology ethics. And, yeah, that would uh, be great.
0: I, lo- I, w- I love that idea. And it needs to be CRM firms involved. And then next year, one of the questions has to do with uh, some scenario that's called something else, but is but is the Dakota Access Pipeline. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, a yeah. pipeline wants to be built across <laughs> South Dakota land. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. No, no, these are, yeah. And the, the ethical questions are actually based on situations that people have had to deal with mm-hmm. uh, so you know uh the university of idaho won and uh to entice people the last year was the first year of the ethics bowl and um idaho won then and the grand prize was 500 dollars. wow and i think i think it was just money mm-hmm. for the team this year the uh prize was expanded to 750 bucks but the um, Idaho students were like, you know what? We'll just stick with 500 for first place and then 250 for second. So oh. if you if you go to the Ethics Bowl and it's like a couple hours long in the in the um, the conference like program, it shows that it's like three hours long. Actually, it's not even that long. It took them like 45 minutes to an hour to do it all mm-hmm. and for the judges to uh, determine a winner. So they're trying to increase the number of teams. Uh, you know low scores 250 bucks you if you come second if you're first runner up second place 250 man that's that's decent and then if you win that's big time you know 500 bucks that's quite a bit for you just to answer a question where there's no right or wrong answer based on a, a scenario that people have experienced so the ethics bowl like they want it to expand there's actual prize money involved and they're trying to figure out how to expand it so if you if you're out there and you're interested Tell the SHA, yeah, expand it from students. Include as mm-hmm. uh, you know, CRMers, uh, and people who work for the government in the parks.
0: Who, uh, is there contact info for that, or is there a common email address for Ethics Bowl or something people can send stuff to?
1: Yeah, I'm not going to say it on the on the internet, but we can put it in the, um, in the show we can notes. put it in the show notes because the okay. the people who the people who were the um, judges this year, some of them were on the team last year. And okay. I guess it's the fourth annual ethics Bowl. I don't know what the other ones were. I guess last year was the first time Idaho was involved, but mm-hmm. yeah, fourth annual ethics Bowl prize money involved. and I will figure out who the actual person to contact for that is.
0: okay. I think it'd be really fun to have uh, have that like moderated almost by somebody from the archaeology podcast network and recorded like like a almost like a game show host. you know what I mean? <laughs> um, I think that'd be fantastic, right? And we could cut it all together for a for a, a nice episode of, the, of a podcast. That'd be awesome.
1: <laughs> i'm always trying to work
0: the angles yeah i was gonna say i don't know if it'd be
1: like that interesting to hear people bungle around over ethical questions like you know let's say you run a podcast network and
0: then you hear that
1: someone else is going to do a podcast what do That's you right. do
0: <laughs> well, if well you're chris you say come to my side <laughs> Well, if uh we'd have to do it in video so we could do it like some reality show, right? so um so when somebody's asking the question, we can get these concerned looks from the other side and and the and the music in the background, and it's totally fictitious. We can make this look really good, and then really hype it up for the following years. There you go um, <laughs> I know what
1: I know what I missed on Thursday afternoon that seemed amazing. It was a session on uh mummified human remains from early mm. modern period, and I know several of the people who gave talks in that and i already know that there's cultural uh traditions in finland specifically mm-hmm. where uh mummified remains are part of the actual like celebration or whatever and so right. i talked to him about it and i i missed it because i spent my time doing other stuff and i actually was you know kind of kicking myself over that mm-hmm.
0: well let's talk about some of that other stuff because in 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 years past um i i think this was uh maybe not last year but a couple years ago at least you did uh you talked to some people about the Society for Black Archaeologists, and and, and now that's really taking off, right? Where, where's that sitting at right now in the SHA?
1: Oh, it's exploding. So um, that's the thing. I don't know if it's actually – it's not really – I mean, we're SHA members, many of us, but mm-hmm. I have a feeling that it's just going off on its own. The, mm. the, um, since last year, last year was announced that the uh, SBA would start an underwater archaeology program uh, associated with uh, Divers with a Purpose. Um, it's a, it's kind of an interesting um, combination of things, but the Smithsonian and NOAA have a um, slave wrecks project where they go to different um, countries that were part of the African slave trade, and they try to identify wrecked ships. Uh, part of part of that, there were members of the group uh, Divers with a Purpose, which is um, mostly African American archaeologists who uh, just realized there was a space for uh, African-Americans to learn how to train other people how to do uh, diving. So at that point, before 2015, it was just the African-American divers working with the underwater archaeologists from uh, the National Park Service. So in 2016, they approached uh, the Society of Black Archaeologists and asked if there was any way to train um, they they realize that it's easier to train an archaeologist how to do underwater archaeology than it is to train a diver to be an archaeologist Because we already have the education and I know it's terrestrial versus underwater And there's probably some underwater person out there that like spit out their beer and is screaming at the screen right now because no you fools It's totally different, right? <laughs> right. So uh, I, I mean, yeah, perhaps we are fools. I don't know We're naive, but we're learning how to be underwater archaeologists and we're just doing what we can do mm-hmm. so um, the uh, There's several. There's a couple members from the SBA who have gotten um, uh, PADI certified, and uh, in order to be on the Slave Rex project, you have to have 30 dives uh, under your belt before you can actually start doing uh, the underwater archaeology on this this particular project. Mm -hmm. So they're getting their 30 dives in, and this summer there's going to be. a field school, a public archaeology thing that's joint terrestrial and underwater that the Society of Black Archaeologists is going to be administering in St. Croix. Um, it's going to involve uh, Crucian students, Crucian youth doing uh, the terrestrial uh, component. And then there's also uh, um, there's already an underwater diving program for Crucian youth that will participate in the underwater archaeology part. And the problem is they're kind of looking for a wreck that they can um, survey or use, uh, and if that doesn't work, it'll be reef restoration work underwater. Okay. So that that's that's happening, and then as a result, the SBA has to be serious. It can't be any more of like you know the just the black people in a corner uh, at the SHA talking about you know, archaeology and you know and in what, what we can contribute. Now we have to form our own actual group. So that's what's really exciting. You know, I can't. I don't know about the details yet because after the conference, we have to have another meeting on who's going to be the board of directors. But it has to organize as an official organization, either a um, LLC or a 501c3 or a corporation or something, because um, it has to establish a legal um, framework for taxation so that it can actually get funding from uh, institutions, right for grants and stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's the step where we're at. We have to have a vote to see who's going to be on the board, but. Uh, next, it, the the project in Saint Croix is going to be at least three years, and right now it's you know the first folks are starting up, and we don't have any spots really for students or people who are outside of the association because we don't have any money to provide. It's going to uh-huh. be us doing it all. But by uh, figuring out our, our legal uh, framework this year, then we can ask for grants for next year, right, uh, and then the years after that. So. Uh, I have to finish my dissertation. I'm like locked in a closet, literally. <laughs> and um, I, I'm in the process of doing, uh, you know, uh, getting my PADI certification to go do underwater, uh, to do scuba diving. But since there's no water anywhere near uh, Tucson, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be kind of hard to get my 30 dives in before <laughs> the summer. So All I'm right. given myself a year to give 30 dives. I know Mexico's close. But it ain't like, you know, across the street. So uh, I gotta figure out what I'm gonna do to get all my dives. I'm working with the people people from uh diving with a purpose. So uh yeah, stay tuned, you know.
0: Does uh it, I know places like that because people wanna stay up on their practice and you know, they wanna they wanna be able to do things like that even if they live in the desert with no water. Um but don't they have places where now? What is what counts as a dive? If you went to a place that had like a dive pool or something like that, does that count as a dive, or does it have to be out in the water somewhere?
1: Yeah, I you know I don't know. Yeah, You're right. Because I have a pool. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Put all your I stuff get, on. <laughs> I can get thirty dives done in like four weeks if, that, right? if we just go to my pool and I just go underwater. Right. So I'm pretty sure they're talking about serious, actual going out, open water stuff. Right. And I, I think they kind of. They mean the ocean. However, I know that they've done some underwater archaeology in like the Great Lakes and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I know in Idaho, when I was a student at the University of Idaho, our uh, open water certification was at Lake Pondere or one of the other deep lakes mm-hmm. there in northern Idaho. They didn't go all the way to like, you know, Seattle in order to do the open water. Right. Um, so, I, I, you know, it's a matter of figuring it out getting my certification and then figuring out, I'm pretty sure there's people in Phoenix that are part of the association. And I can almost guarantee you, you know, once every three months, they go to Mexico mm-hmm. and I already know several people who uh, they did scuba dive. And I know a guy I used to work with a guy who was an archeologist. He was a field tech. And then his other job was training people in Mexico on how to do scuba diving. So I'm trying to figure out from that guy. I need to figure out what divers divers with a purpose really want for my certification mm-hmm. and what qualifies as a dive, and then I can expand from there. Right. Cool. Well
0: that sounds really yeah, fun. So
1: it, it's going down and and like uh the people who started the Society of Black Archaeologists, they're getting more and more people soliciting them for uh doing work, um you know, like CRM work and other mm-hmm. stuff, and they just really don't have the capacity. So when they set up their legal framework then they can actually um charge money because otherwise the way that it's set up it's like you're just basically paying two people who are phd students (laughs) to do this if we have an actual organization then all the um, professors and and crmers that are like the advisors for the group right now Mm -hmm. will be brought on and there will be a framework for actually doing field work and doing archaeology so uh as far as its relationship to the sha I have a feeling that in the future it'll be its own organization, even if it's smaller. Mm-hmm. That will be, uh, you know, aligned and collaborate with the SHA, but it will not actually be part of the SHA.
0: So there wouldn't still be an existing like committee or anything like that within the SHA.
1: So the the um, SHA already has the um, oh man, I can't think of the name of it. It's like the uh, Gender and Minority Affairs Committee. GMAC. Oh, right. That's it. Yeah, Gender and Minority Affairs. So right. that's a much bigger And more inclusive thing than the, uh, well, so here's the thing the Society of Black Archaeologists is not just for black archaeologists. People (laughs) who are not black are part of it, right? Right. So the goal is to increase the number of black archaeologists, but it's not excluding people who are not black. And so the name kind of is off putting that it would only be a black organization, but that's not actually the case. Um, right. Well, that's good. At any rate, the SHA already has its own thing. And like you were saying, the SHA's goal is to, uh, Uh, report on work that we've done and uh, focus on ethics and create an organization for historical and underwater archaeologists to um, uh, work with each other. Whereas the SBA is more of a kind of building capacity and going into communities and doing community archaeology and building the number of African-American underwater archaeologists and trying to actually go and it's more of like an action group compared to the SHA, which is more of a, maybe it's not really Mm -hmm. regulatory, but uh, a more uh, intellectual group.
0: Right. And I guess having your own organization, too, would open up to, because the SHA is, you know, historical in underwater archaeology. This would, being separate from that would separate you from the historical aspect, too, and, and open you up to everything else.
1: Well, you know, and it also would kind of separate us from the archaeology component. Would, that's
0: true, too. Uh, into yeah.
1: education and heritage conservation, which is, that's the that's really actually what's uh, kind of missing out there. Mm-hmm. I just saw an email that talked about the uh, Department of Interior's 24 uh, new uh, National Historic Landmarks that they nominated this year. And going down the list, I mean, of course, uh, we live in a racialized society, right? So mm-hmm. I just look at sites and I I like read behind the lines the ethnicity or the race of the site. So, you know, you'll look at a farmstead and it's named the Jones Farmstead. You might think that that's Euro-American, but that could be African-American or uh, Native American or Asian, you know, there's a million things it could be. However, Mm -hmm. when they explain the significance of these uh, different places, you know, Chicano Park's one of them in, uh, oh man, is it LA or San Diego? Anyway, it was the place where uh, community leaders came together. And they protested like the destruction of the park, and it's mm-hmm. still there. So that's a national historic landmark. But I looked through it, and of the twenty-four, probably about eighteen of them were ethnic. They mm-hmm. were associated with either Native American groups uh, in prehistory or protohistory, uh, Hispanic, African American, Asian American, and so there was all these um, landmarks that they just nominated. However, I guarantee you, the people who created that and actually led to the nomination. Uh, and the confirmation of that, we're not of that ethnic group just because hmm. that's the way that our entire organization is. There's not um, uh, Hispanics making decisions about Hispanic resources and there's not really African-Americans making those same kind of decisions. So to build the capacity and the ability to uh, nominate our own things and for it to be within our own, uh, it, it creates a, a whole nother level of ownership mm-hmm. uh of that resource
0: okay cool well that's awesome um i was gonna say if uh if you hadn't said the society for black archaeologists was inclusive of uh of other people i was gonna say we should start a society for white archaeologists as well oh wait that's the <laughs> saa uh, yeah, sorry uh, I, <laughs> I was gonna say that
1: is just archaeologists right archaeologists, SAA. <laughs> yeah we i don't know man that's not fair of us to bag on the saa like that most it's of the people most of my friends are SAA folks. Like right now, the <laughs> the um, social media sphere is like, who's going to SAA? Who's going to go? And mm-hmm. and the time of year it is is always not good for me because mm-hmm. the winter time it's always like, wow, there's snow. So I guess I'll go catalog the five thousand artifacts that we dug. Like <laughs> you know that, or I guess I'll work on these four things and you know build screens or something like that. I mean in CRM there's like nothing to do in the winter. Yeah. So then, when spring's pop and it's like finally the snow's gone and there's contracts going down. There's stuff for me to do, and then right in the middle of that is SAA, right. and your whole office goes. And so then I guess we just all like watch, you know, Vikings or whatever on our computer <laughs> and monkey around on Facebook while all of the bosses, the entire cultural resources division, is all at the SAA. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as being a member of that, that. It was never as attractive as SHA, but also I'm more interested in historical archaeology, and I do more of that. However, I've been to the SAA plenty of times, and it's almost always, well, who's going to stay back in Seattle and actually do work because this project is going on? Mm -hmm. And I know nine of the 12 archaeologists are all going to go to this, but what are we going to do? How are we going to keep this week of work going because all our bosses and everybody else will be gone in the middle of projects, whereas January, there's nothing going on.
0: That's a good point. I, I always um sort of make fun of the SHA I and mean, be like, why would you have your conference in first week of January? Because, you know, people just got off a of vacation probably, um, you know, with their families, and now they're going off into this conference. And there's always winter problems. I remember you talking about Quebec and how hard it was to get in there. Uh-huh. But that being said, I talked to, um, I talked to um uh, Charles uh, Ewan, one of the former presidents uh, on on the podcast, and said why why January? And he said, well, SA's is in the spring. Um I think uh Triple is in the uh AAA's is in the fall so uh and field work is over the summer so we, like we were just kind of left with winter but he said also the same thing you did is you know it's 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 easier from a work standpoint for a lot of people to make it to this conference so yeah. because because there isn't a lot going on in the, at least in North America and uh you know in the winter time so anyway let's yeah, pick and, this to... and,
1: go ahead and being being a smaller conference like that maximizing that is important because yeah. The membership is like a third of what the SAA is. So making it in a time that people can actually come to the conference, that's much more important than a bigger, more robust organization.
0: Right. All right. Well, we're going to finalize this discussion on the uh, Society for Historical Archaeology meeting um, and underwater. Sorry, I always forget that. Uh, When we come back on the other side of this last break. (laughs) The Archaeology Podcast Network's conference channel is a collection of interviews from conferences around the world. Interviews are usually posted during the conference with minimal editing, so you, the listener, can be there virtually. Check out the conference feed at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash conferences. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, we're back for our final segment. And um, I want to bring it back just real quick uh, to something I noticed because, again, I had a limited view of this conference being in the tech room most of the time. Um, we were right next to for a while. Well, we were right across, the, actually, the the aisleway from TDAR, um, the Digital Archaeological Record, and um, they're basically a, a housing and repository for those that don't know for um, for archaeological information. Right, they they store this in an archival format and they make it available to people on a limited filtered basis. But um, you know that's what they do. That's what they're set up for. And they're at Arizona State um, over in uh, over in Tempe. So. Bill, I just wanted to ask you real quick about that. Being on the other side of the state, at the other Arizona University, <laughs> is, uh, yeah. is 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 TDR talked about there in the archaeology or anthropology department as as a place to store your stuff? Because I know they have a real problem with communication, with advertising, right? With marketing, with getting their things out there. They're at all the conferences and things, but still, it seems like people don't really know who they are very much.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. Okay, so in my own experience as a grad student, yeah, you find mm-hmm. out what TDAR is. They come and talk. There's okay. no way you could finish all your courses without someone coming from TDAR. and actually, I I set up all my stuff for my dissertation to ultimately be curated at TDAR. So ah. all of the uh, you know the artifact tables, the PDFs of the reports, mm-hmm. and I don't know what else they'll take. I know all my photographs. All that stuff's going to go to TDR.
0: Mm-hmm. Well,
1: that's good. Yeah. Uh, so if you're a graduate student at the University of Arizona and you're not doing a PhD or a master's on something that would be sensitive, um, TDAR – well, also the best thing about it is you can have different levels of private versus publicness because I set mine all up as a public archaeology thing. Everything uh-huh. I have is public and I'm, I need to figure out what to do about the UTMs of our excavation units. However, because a lot of this is on private property, I mean, you'll get sued if you go out there and dig. So right. in some ways, I actually don't have to worry about that as much because uh, the private property owner is the one who can actually have take legal action against someone looting their site. Mm-hmm. For other people who maybe are doing degrees on something much more sensitive, it's an absolutely awesome idea to give all their stuff to TDAR, but then set it so that it's private, so that only people who have um, passed the uh, screening can see what you actually did. And I, I don't know how they handle... Uh, I know they don't take video, and I don't know how they handle audio files. So mostly this is uh, digital files like data, um, UTMs, maps, Excel mm-hmm. tables, uh, reports, PDFs of reports. And I don't. I really don't know what the problem between people um giving their info like crm companies giving their information to tdar right i I know that they're required by law to send all that stuff to the uh arizona state museum the hard copies and everything Mm -hmm. however it seems like there's kind of a well we did what we're supposed to do so doing this would be extra work and we don't necessarily need to right I i don't know if that's a public image thing of tdar uh, I, I know that the state of Arizona has, uh, Arizona State Museum has way more information than Tdar so right. if you have access to the ASM then like Tdar is a drop in the bucket compared to, to the ASM
0: mm-hmm. yeah that's a good point It's interesting to see where Tdar goes you know in in the future because like you said, I think for grad students and things like that, it actually is a good thing. It's, uh, you know, for, for academic projects, TDAR is a really great place to store your things. But for CRM stuff, it'd be, I feel like people would be hard pressed to store things there uh, simply because uh, I know at least here in Nevada, you know, most of the land we have is BLM land and all your records are stored at the BLM district office, right? So it's all right there. Now, maybe they don't want to have all that stuff. I don't know. Maybe if some other organization came along and said, hey, we'll keep all this for you right here um, and it's digitally accessible. Then maybe that would work, but that's also kind of what Dina is trying to do. Um, I talked to them as well, and you know they're moving from the southeast and kind of taking over the east coast and moving west with their records. And that's a completely different thing, though, the way that they're doing that. So uh, it's again filtered access, but it's it's just different. They're give they're basically giving you access to the to the records for different states, and it depends on what the state gives them access to and all kinds of stuff. So it's it's definitely nobody's quite figured out. Exactly the best way to do all this. Uh, personally, I feel like the whole concept of archaeological records management from a long-term standpoint really should be some sort of federal thing, right? I mean, when we get back into prehistorics, we're talking about pre-states even existing, or in a lot of cases, pre anyone being here except for the Native Americans, right? No, no Europeans, no anything. So why would this be on a state-by-state or institution-by-institution basis? It almost should just be the federal government has a plan for, you know, archiving and holding all this stuff and and there's one standard and everybody sends all their stuff right there and it's accessible by whoever needs to get to it. So I don't know, that would be way complicated and and too hard to set up.
1: Yeah. And the whole, the way that the compliance is set up varies by state. So.
0: Which is ridiculous.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've we've (laughs) basically got uh, 50 different administrations with different levels of state, local and federal. That actually kind of boil down to really only like two or three variations. Yeah. I I mean, there's some states that are super strict with their uh, cultural resources Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, different forests or communities or uh, um, districts of the state are the ones who take care of all that stuff. California is what I'm thinking of mainly because they have like a million different repositories. Uh, When you go to the repository, it doesn't seem like they have any kind of standard way of holding all that data together. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of them are excellently done and then others of them aren't. And it's it's a lot of times really related to how many people live there. So in Southern California, there's like excellent repositories that have all the stuff. Then if you try to check something out for like, you know, the rural parts or the inland valley, a lot of times that's just question mark. You have no idea. I know one time I went on a project and the the repository there in Roanert Park is excellent. And then uh, about that specific project, I went to this little Healdsburg uh, Community Museum Mm -hmm. that is in an old converted church that had way more information about this one specific project. I mean, we're talking uh, cabinet files just loaded with newspaper articles that the SHPO had no idea even existed. Like they didn't have any of that stuff. None of the universities had that stuff. Then this random little community library had more data than I could process an entire (laughs) month. So it doesn't seem like there's any kind. I mean, in California, it's atomized to a million different degrees.
0: Yeah, and you're right. It's all the information centers. The one in Roner Park. Rona Park. I've been to that one as well. It's the Northwest. Um, I think it's called the Northwest Information Center. And but you're right. These information centers in California are all these little fiefdoms of their own little, their own little design, and they all do their own things. And we actually, you know, um, they're all they're all coming up with their own solutions for managing the records. And it doesn't seem like anyone's talking to each other, which is uh, which is frustrating. But Anyway, that's a conversation for probably an entirely different podcast. Um, let's, take yeah, let's, <laughs> let's take it back to the SHA. Let's take it back to the SHA real yeah. quick. And what are some other things that you saw that you want to bring up on the show?
1: Um, this is my second year that I've been part of the three-minute forums. And its I mean, every time a minute, I pretty much understand that that's probably the way that all conference papers <laughs> should be given. Right. Three minutes, dude. Three minutes. Because in all fairness, most of us... We're going to the session because there was only like three or four of the things that we actually cared about, but we have to Mm -hmm. wade through minute after minute of stuff that we don't really care about in a lot of ways. Three minutes, what do you actually think? It can be boiled down to like a few sentences, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the second time that I was part of the three-minute forum, and in the the, uh, uh, academic and professional training committee meeting, uh, we were talking about maybe rec- or not that in another uh, workshop that I took, anti-racism workshop, which we'll go into that in a minute. Uh-huh. But uh, th- we were talking about some of the things we can do to increase access to the conference because it is so expensive. Would be to televise or not not televise, but screencast or record or make available some of the sessions to wider audiences. And a three-minute session is you know almost. 100% geared towards this Because uh-huh. nobody goes over four minutes um, uh, There, Most of the time You don't have enough time to throw in a, a boatload of jargon and stuff like that So you have to just speak straight to the point Like what did you find And uh, I was in the, the one this time That was on um, Privilege And it, some of it was like white privilege Some of it was privilege as archaeologists Some of it was the way that our work gets co-opted To you know uh, bolster arguments for white nationalism and stuff and it was it's great because there's three or four talks and each one of them is three minutes long and then there's 15 minutes of conversation and everybody is asking questions and talking about the themes of those talks and uh you know plenty of times for breaks plenty of times to talk i mean if you stay under tw- three minutes you get candy so there's food even involved mm-hmm. and um, i like i said i'm pretty much down in the three minute forum like yeah i'm I'm almost always down for that uh and then that that's the other thing it leads into the other thing that i did that was great was the anti-racism workshops and right. they are i i did it before in seattle and that was the first pretty much identifying structural racism workshop which was absolutely useful uh, mm-hmm. I, I talked to one um archaeologist who's also an anthro professor and he was saying yeah but that was like basic anthro 101 stuff and i was kind of thinking you know what actually a lot of people don't know this kind of stuff i mean Mm -hmm. the fact that eyes are being raised and people are kind of being illuminated on how this whole thing works uh absolutely useful this is the third year they've done it but this year they actually did another a second steps taking steps towards becoming an anti-racist organization so the sha Mm -hmm. So the incoming new president was there. The outgoing president was there. A lot of the people who are in charge um, are taking this seriously. And at the end, we actually created steps that we were going to do to make this a more inclusive uh, organization. And they didn't all focus on racism or discrimination or anything. It was understood that uh, we just needed to reach out to more publics and have more interaction with people who aren't archaeologists, and we came up with some concrete uh, ways to do that. Mm -hmm. And then we needed to make sure that the conference is more accessible to a wider uh, number of actual archaeologists and students. So televising, or I mean, recording and um, uh, live streaming sessions, that's part of in the works for the next one, the next SHA. Uh, Talking to people who live in that community where our conference is going to be and inviting them to come down. So in the months leading up to this, going on Skype to schools, talking to people in uh, um, HBCUs, black universities, talking to people who are in local museums, giving these Skype talks to try and pump up the public to come, and then creating a separate tier for the public to come to just see like a few hours of the of the conference or, you know, making it so it's not five hundred dollars for you to come and see it. Maybe it's only five dollars for a family to come on the archaeology day. Maybe it's you know, only $10 to see a whole day if you're not an actual member. So mm-hmm. there's there's big changes coming up. And then through that, the idea was to target, you know, underrepresented groups. Um, so the, that's the one thing about the SHA that I really like over the SAA, that they are actually, they have internalized the fact that racism exists and that it is part of being an archaeologist as part of the heritage of archaeology in the United States. Mm-hmm. And they are actively working on a way to try and take it down. And this is not going to happen overnight. We're talking about a generational type thing. Right. Like 30 years from now, the SHA will have internalized this. So this isn't like, you know, you think of a fight or a war or a battle. It's just an overall uh, change of the mentality of the people who are the members of that. And I don't see any movement on that front from the SAA. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, it's a shame so, yeah, that, this... that, that was my. That was my favorite part of the conference. It always is yeah. every year.
0: I was gonna say it's a shame that this didn't uh, this didn't really start to kick off at the beginning of the uh, current presidential administration because now that we're just starting to get steam under this kind of thing as as the Trump administration comes in, it's well, it really is more important than ever. I'm just saying I wish it was a little more fleshed out. You know, like if it was a little more advanced right now as we're coming into this, so we can deal with these things. But um it's great that it it exists now, and you guys are really making some headway because uh uh I feel like I feel like going forward racism issues across the board in all industries are gonna be a, an issue because well because that's the kind of thing that trump the trump administration has and the trump uh campaign has uh i wouldn't say promoted but definitely not done anything about and not um dissuaded people from from having those sorts of thoughts and actions so so yeah I,
1: I- yeah, it's, yeah. To get to where the SHA is at now, that didn't happen overnight. We're talking like it sure. ten, year, 10 well, years, ten years of people, you know, raising the issue again and again, mm-hmm. forcing the uh, the people who are in charge to address this kind of thing. And even still, there's a lot of people that are thinking, "Oh, well, you know, there's not really like a race problem in our organization." It's kind of like look around the room, look at what you're talking about, <laughs> right. look at the people who are coming to see this. It's us talking to us, and us is the people who look like us, right? So, right. yeah, we do actually have a problem. There's a reason why they could possibly cut you know, uh, funding for the uh, National Historic – or, I mean, uh, regulations for historic preservation mm-hmm. because we just sit in a room talking to each other. And we haven't been spending any time going out and trying to get other uh, – you know what? I'll take that back. There's tons of people who are actually trying to get um, communities involved. And it's not like most Americans actually care about history or mm-hmm. uh, historic preservation or archaeology. However, it's it's thoroughly possible to have an entire career without ever having given a single talk to any elementary class or ever having talked to a city hall or anything. You can live your right. entire career as an archaeologist and never ever talk to anyone who's not an archaeologist about archaeology unless you're married to them or trying to get married to them. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, you know. Uh, say that this wasn't happening before Trump, this is the kind of stuff that's been happening for like a decade. Yeah. And even and before Trump even said she, before Hillary, before Bernie, the SHA already was doing anti-racism workshops three years ago. Nice. And it's just going to continue going on. Trump happened and everybody's kind of shocked. Fortunately, this organization was already in a position to maneuver itself away from the trap and mm-hmm. try and change the mindset of its members.
0: Well good. Um I guess my only further comment on that is is to address um what you said, the guy that said this is like Anth 101 stuff. Um and you're and you're talking to archaeologists having this and it's like Anth 101 stuff. I think that's fantastic because uh it should be it should be a revisit of what you quote unquote already learned because that's one thing we find over and over again is um I just mentioned this on another podcast. Like I visited Pompeii when I was in the Navy when I was 20 years old. And I visited, again, exactly 20 years later, just this summer. And I'll tell you what, looking at Pompeii through the lens of somebody who's not only 20 years older, but also been an archaeologist for over 10 years, I saw it very differently than I did when I was 20, right? And you take your Anth 101 class typically when you're 18 or 19, and now you're sitting in this anti-racism workshop and you're getting this information through the lens of a professional archaeologist, somebody who's... Um, been around the block, seen a few different things, and can actually process and use that information in a more valuable way, I think, than you could when you were, you know, eighteen, nineteen years old or older. But either way, at least four plus years back. So, um, well, I think the, we always the, need to revisit that.
1: The organization that gives the anti-racism workshops—that's their job. That's all they do. They go right. around to corporations and government institutions. They're not archaeologists they work with all kinds of organizations to address this thing that's their entire business.
0: Right. Okay, well that's uh that's about it for this episode. Um I just do you have any final thoughts on to wrap out wrap up this year for 2017 some some final insights into the conference? Well the the um
1: the final thought that I was going to say is next year it's in New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that attendance thing we'll take care of that and in 2021 it's going to be in Portugal. Wow. So that that might be one that's uh, maybe not well attended however my wife actually is interested and if you're doing something with archaeology and my wife is interested then you're definitely <laughs> you're connecting with those publics that don't really actually care that much about archaeology. Right. So uh yeah, see you there 2018 New Orleans. I'll be there. Do you, do you know where it's at yet? Is it in the French Quarter or is it outside? Yeah. No, it's in the French Quarter. The, the hotel. I don't know which hotel. It's probably an Omni though. I haven't looked at it. I guess yeah. the SHA has a contract with Omni, so a lot of times it is one. Mm-hmm. But they told me that it was only like a block away from the French Quarter. My God. And uh right now we're we're fielding um like the uh tours ideas, and I was thinking, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there could be a Louis Armstrong Historical Archaeology oh, Tour that'd go be amazing. To sites. There yeah. also could be a really cool uh um disaster historic preservation one about how yeah. they saved historic sites after katrina so i i mean there's oh there's going to be a um, curation and deaccessioning deaccessioning workshop that'll be mm-hmm. supported so uh the, the last couple times they've done those they were absolutely slammed because if there's one thing archaeologists want to know it's how to get rid of the artifacts we <laughs> dug up <laughs> right so yeah it's it, there's always top minds thinking of yeah. these different strategies of deaccessioning connect- collections in an ethical way
0: well and uh the French Quarter is a great place to have an anti-racism workshop again, too. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. and
1: also with our, uh, like I said, the, the action steps of that workshop were to connect with schools and communities there in New Orleans because we're going to actually be there and to reach out and say, uh, we see that you're doing good work. Is there anything that we can add because we're coming to town and we do archaeology? Is there anything that we can do to help you? Um, uh, is there anything that you need that we can help you with? That was one of the first steps to be more inclusive and to think about, you know, us Mm -hmm. and them together. We have our own mission. Of course, I'm going to go and talk about probably something I dug up and, you know, some high level, you know, theoretical Mm -hmm. stuff like I do every year, but connecting with communities. And, you know, I would be overjoyed to see people of new Orleans, just feeling that public archeology span day thing at the conference and, you know, kids and families and stuff, seeing some of the awesome Mm -hmm. stuff that's going on in Louisiana with historic preservation and uh, archaeology, they did an amazing job in Quebec City. I was I was astounded with how many people were there, and I have a feeling that the um, y- local university that did a lot of the organization reached out to the community. Hmm. I mean, mainly because there was you know preschoolers and little kids there with their whole family, and the whole room was like jam packed. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, they spent some time reaching out before nice. the conference.
0: Well, awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Bill, for joining me on this episode and, and rehashing the 2017 SHA. Um, uh, for all our listeners, if you want to connect with the Archaeology Podcast Network in person, uh, we will be at the Society for Cal- California Archaeology Meetings, which is happening just outside of Yosemite National Park at Tenaya Lodge. We've got a three booth set up there where we'll be there with Codify, PCS, and CODA. And then also, uh, that's a March 8th it starts, and then at the end of March is the uh, Society for American Archaeology Meetings in Vancouver. I give them a lot of crap, but we'll be there giving them all kinds of money for booths, so <laughs> come yeah, on. We, I, I love to give them crap because I love to do that whole like, <laughs> history, history,
1: prehistory, but I, I, you know, I love prehistory. Right. It's yeah. absolutely interesting. And there's some <laughs> historical there too, But, and True. I also like Vancouver,
0: but yeah, I give the SAA crap, but they're <laughs> actually an excellent organization too. Indeed. Indeed. Alright, well hopefully we'll see some of our listeners there and uh, at the SA's we will have a forum where we'll be live podcasting from. I say live, it won't be broadcasting live, but we'll be recording live so you can ask questions and and we'll we'll talk about public archaeology and all that. So more information on that to come as we get closer but uh, for now, that's it for this show. Um, Thanks for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time. Take it easy. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRMARCpodcast or you can tag at ARCpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. If you share CRM archaeology related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag CRMARC so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle